0: Well, welcome to song number three and the midpoint of our Rocking the Gospel series. Now, we've been to the late 60s. Last week, we were in the 2020s. But now we're jumping back to 1977 to what is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And it almost didn't happen. Now, the song was written by one of the band's guitarists. He he did most of their songwriting, and he was practicing a finger-picking exercise in order to become a better guitarist, and he had a, a makeshift studio set up in his kitchen, and one day, his wife walks through, and here's what he's doing, and to her, it's a gorgeous melody, and so she encourages him to write some lyrics to the song, to, to make it into a full song, and He was reluctant because the song was such a departure from his band's signature sound. But after some cajoling, uh, he recorded a rough demo. But he was still reluctant to play it for the band. But when he did, they sat in stunned silence. And finally, one of his bandmates asked him, Carrie, where has this been? because even in its rawest form, the whole band knew that this song was their next hit song. It was added at the last minute to their newest album, but the label had other plans, and they released the album's title track instead uh, of the song that the band wanted, and and that release, though a good song, it, it underperformed the band's previous hit song and quickly dropped out of the top 40. However... Kerry's song was so powerful and moving that DJs around the country began playing it, even without a formal release. And as in response, the label then rushed Dust in the Wind out as the band's next single, and it became Kansas' greatest hit. Now, the song peaked at number six in April of 1978, and it remained on the charts for several weeks. However, the song's staying power has a legacy that far outreaches its initial chart success, and it is perhaps the most famous acoustic rock song ever recorded. Dust in the Wind is a beautiful lament. Kansas had achieved fame and fortune, but the song's writer, Carrie Livgren, felt a hole in his life that that no amount of success or money could fill. He had come to this realization that all of these achievements would get him nothing, that he would still die like everyone else. Carey describes himself as a classic religious seeker, a quote, charter member of the Religion of the Month Club, end quote. And he had been searching for spiritual meaning ever since... As a nine-year-old, he lost both his grandmother and a best friend. Now, in Kansas' early years, Livgren had explored Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, and he devoured a vast assortment of books on spirituality, including the Chinese Book of Changes and the rather bizarre Urantia book. And if you listen to the band's lyrics... Uh, Livgren's spiritual seeking is clearly evident. And around the time of writing Dust in the Wind, Livgren had been reading a book of Native American spirituality, which included this line, all we are is dust in the wind. Now, this was an idea that resonated with him. And it was later that he realized that the song's message was the same as the biblical book, of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3:20 declares, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. And an oft-repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes is: everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's the same idea as all we are is dust in the wind. Well, he was discovering. The same truth that King Solomon had discovered 3,000 years earlier, that life without God is meaningless, and that no matter where you search for significance, um, you're not going to find it. Now, 10 centuries before Jesus, King Solomon had reigned as Israel's third king. He inherited the throne from his father, David, and, and initially Solomon built on both the success and the faith of his father, and Israel grew in wealth and power. Solomon's success came primarily from his God-given wisdom. When he first became king, God had offered him to ask anything, to ask for anything, but instead of wealth or honor, Solomon simply asked God for a, quote, discerning heart to rule over God's people. And because of this humble request, God granted Solomon not only an unparalleled wisdom, but also all of those other things that he could have asked for, but didn't. And so Israel became a superpower in the Middle East. The kingdom abounded in wealth, and they really had no serious opposition politically or militarily. Solomon's influence spread to the furthest reaches of the known world, People sought to form alliances and trade agreements, and and other rulers sought out his his unequaled insight. But with his God-given success, Solomon became arrogant. And despite his great wisdom, Solomon became a great fool. You see, he had a weakness, a weakness for women. He had many wives and concubines. Now, many of these relationships were Political and diplomatic arrangements. It was common in that era to use political marriages as a way to seal a deal, you know? um you form an alliance? Well, hey, the daughter of this king will marry that king, you know, once our two houses are mixed, surely they won't invade now. That sort of thing. The problem is is that that most of these marriages went directly against God's command as, they were outside of the Jewish faith. These were women who did not worship the Jewish God. They worshiped false idols. So Solomon may have had great wisdom, but he was not above God's law. First Kings eleven four says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father had been. So here's Solomon who's worshiping God, but he's also offering sacrifices to to Baal and to Asherah and and these other idols. And so this leads to a time of, of spiritual and moral wandering in Solomon where he begins to chase after all of these other pursuits. And yet he engages in all of this fullness with his divine discernment still intact. And so he applies a studied analysis. He he evaluated, he measured, he charted just how much happiness and meaning each one of these activities added to his life. Eventually, though, each and every pursuit left Solomon feeling empty. And it didn't matter which ladder he chose to climb, he would get to the top of that ladder and They all seem to be leaning against nothing. He realized how every meaningless, every pursuit was without putting God first. And so finally, Solomon repents of his sin, renounces his idols, and he returns to his relationship with God. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is his memoir of his wandering years. And Ecclesiastes opens with its big idea. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Huh, doesn't that sound like a positive pick-me-up that you want to read? And yet people dealing with the blues, you know, people struggling with depression have had an affinity for this book. They have been drawn to this book for 3,000 years. Right? Sad people sing sad songs and something about Ecclesiastes strikes that chord in the human heart. Now, the first several chapters of Ecclesiastes are an unfolding of this idea that all of life's pursuits are meaningless chasing after the wind. Like, maybe meaning is to be found in education, in study, the acquiring of knowledge. Well, what does Solomon say? I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And what is his conclusion? For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He concludes that education by itself is nothing more than a chasing after the wind. In fact, later he says, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And every kid assigned too much homework says, amen to that. So next, Solomon turns his eye toward pleasure. Right? Maybe the meaning of life is in having a good time, soaking as much fun as you can out of it. And so Solomon goes after every hedonistic delight. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He indulged in the finest wines the world had to offer. He partied with everyone who really knew how to have a good time. He took for himself every woman he found desirable. He writes in Ecclesiastes 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in my labor and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, many think fulfillment is to be found in a successful career, If you work hard enough, long enough and accomplish enough, Well, then there's going to be meaning in that, right? You'll be fulfilled then. But again, Solomon says, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work. He tried that too. Here's what he says. Quote, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me you can't take any of it with you. Later, Solomon observes, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And how much of our lives are wasted, are trying to to compete or keep up with someone else? Of wealth, Solomon says this, quote, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. All right. The more you have, the more others want it. He continues. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? All right. You can be rich, but to be truly wealthy, you need the things that money can't buy. It is never worth it to make lots of money at the expense of the things that are priceless. Now, Solomon was the first to figure out the truth of what Carrie Livgren was learning in the late 70s. And it's the same exact lesson that so many others have learned, too. I wrote down a quote years ago from Tom Brady. He was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. Now, at the time, he was only three Super Bowl rings into his unequaled seven. But I thought about this quote a lot over the last couple of years as Brady won another Super Bowl, retired, then unretired, even at the expense of his marriage, only then to retire again. But here's what Brady said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Right? Here's a man who'd achieved everything he ever wanted, and it wasn't what he wanted. Eric Pierce spent 15 years of his life climbing the ladder of career and business success. He went from programmer to consultant to management. He had larger and larger teams working under his direction. He got bigger raises, higher bonuses, generous stock options. And yet, listen to what Eric writes. I was being groomed for bigger and therefore better things. I was in million-dollar negotiations and had the skinny, on sensitive information. I was on the inside. The higher I climbed, the more I realized there was nothing waiting at the top, but more responsibility and less interesting work. Dr. Suzanne Gell recalls a time when she was just 16 years old, and yet she had devoted most of the years of her childhood to achieve something. She won both the ballet and modern dance championships the same day. Her huge win was celebrated by her community. There was a a half-page picture in her hometown paper. She was celebrated with cheers and compliments and accolades and flowers. And she said it was like this total blur. And with so much adoration, Suzanne said she felt like a champion, quote, for about an hour. Hmm listen to this. But what I remember most about that night was the way I felt after the hysteria had died down, and how I felt at bedtime, after my family had gone to sleep, alone in my room, so lonely, anxious, and empty. I spent hours lying there alone in the dark until the emptiness became unbearable. And so that's how I celebrated my incredible history-making double victory binging alone in my room, soothing myself with food. And so here's how Solomon put it. This is what he would say to all of these people. This is what he would say to, to you and to me when we find our pursuits aren't delivering the fulfillment and satisfaction that we hope they would. It's meaningless. It's all meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Carrie Livgren put it this way, all we do crumbles to the ground though we refuse to see dust in the wind all we are is dust in the wind here's how our lord's brother puts it james 4:14 4, what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes how many people spend so much of their lives to reach Someplace in their career, in their education, in their accomplishment, in their recognition, in their financial stability, only to recognize that once they get there, it's not where they really wanted to be. They finally get that corner office and and that plaque on their desk. They get that MBA or their PhD. They get that million-dollar portfolio, that title. They win the award, but their heart is still empty. So here's how Solomon sums it all up. He gets to the conclusion. He says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. All right. So he's saying, if you want meaning in life, you got to put God first. Our Savior Jesus put it this way seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these other things will be added to you as well. You see, all of life's pursuits, apart from God, are meaningless. They're nothing more than dust in the wind. But if you put God first, right, then there is meaning and joy to be found in all of life. Right? Work and its rewards are a blessing. Marriage and the pleasures of your lover become a lasting joy. True accomplishment takes on eternal significance, the gospel multiplies life. And I think too often, too many people, they look at the decision to follow Jesus as a choice between, well, you can enjoy this life or you can put all your hope in the next life. But that misses the point. Right? Following Jesus isn't just about the next life. It isn't pie in the sky, bury your head in the sand, I'm just in heaven's waiting room. No, faith in Christ is the key to unlocking this life. Jesus is the good news, right? Not just for the next world, but for this world. Now, following the success of Dust in the Wind, Kansas became one of the top rock and roll acts in the country, right? Right up there with the likes of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, they're selling out arenas. And yet, Kerry Livgren's search continued even as his, his emptiness deepened. In 1979, Kansas was touring their newest album *Monolith*, and they were touring with a band called Larue. And the lead singer of that band was a, a a man by the name of Jeff Pollard, who was a Christian. And Carrie and Jeff would would spend hours in the tour bus after shows talking about the Bible and Jesus. Now, I remember reading an interview uh, years and years ago about this meeting, and and it, it described how how Jeff had agreed to read some of Carrie's spiritual books if Carrie Livgren would read the Bible. And, and I, I think it was, there was also a C.S. Lewis book in the mix, um, Mere Christianity. And so he did. He started reading God's Word and, 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 and he read these Christian books. And on July 25th, 1979, Kansas played a show in Indianapolis. And this was the night that things really began to boil over for Carrie, And it was in the wee hours of the morning. Livgren sat there uh, in his hotel room, all of his spiritual books open, the Bible are open before him, and with tears flowing down his face, he prayed, Lord, if Jesus Christ is your son, then I want to know him. If he really is the living God, my redeemer and my Lord, then I want to serve him with all of my heart. And at that very moment, Livgren says, the Holy Spirit overcame me and I was laughing and crying. And I felt this huge weight on my shoulders had suddenly been taken away forever. And Livgren points to that moment as the pivotal point in my life. Quote, I've been a Christian since July 25th, 1979 at 3 a.m. Now, about a year later, Carrie Livgren was making an appearance at a Christian radio station where he meets a fan. And there was a fan of the band Kansas uh, who was a Christian. And he pulls out of his pocket a ticket stub to that July 1979 show in Indianapolis. And he told Carrie that that night at the show, he had felt compelled to pray for Carrie during the concert. And he said that he wrestled so hard in prayer that he had to leave the concert in tears. And then when he heard later that Carrie going had become a Christian that night, he was just so overwhelmed. And he'd been carrying that ticket around in his pocket ever since and had been using it to pray for Carrie. And Carrie explains that, that he'd found out over the years that Kansas had many Christian fans who had sensed his spiritual searching in his lyrics, and they had been praying for him. And they prayed that he would truly find Jesus, that he would find the spiritual truth. And Carrie Livgren's life that night was changed forever for the better. Now, that doesn't mean that suddenly Kansas had a string of number one songs. In fact, life in Kansas became more difficult. In all of his religious dalliances, the band had no problem with his spiritual pursuits. But things changed when he found Jesus. Here's what Livgren says. When I was a Buddhist, they didn't care. And with Hinduism, there was really no friction. But the minute there was the faintest aroma of Jesus, I began to see fireworks. At first, they thought it was just another phase that I will go through, but it wasn't. I came on hard and fast right out of the box. I might have handled it differently. But in any case, it was a point of division. And a lot of people think I left because of my faith which is not really true. By the time I left, Steve Walsh, our, sing- our singer, had left because he could no longer handle the lyrics. Shortly thereafter, the violinist was gone, and it was time for me to move on. The ironic thing is that even after both Steve Walsh and Carrie Livgren left the band over matters of faith, he was replaced by singer John Elefante, who's also a Christian. And Carrie Livgren went on to pursue artistic endeavors that allowed him to serve Jesus. And he has on occasion rejoined his former bandmates to play and write and perform. However, he still follows Jesus as his savior and Lord and the gospel still takes center stage in Kerry Livgren's life. And if you're a fan of classic rock or prog rock, um, Google Kerry Livgren's name and check out some of the work that he's done since his days in Kansas, it was interesting. Just this last week, I was listening to one of those works. It's an album uh, about the resurrection of Lazarus. And I was looking at the names of the the musicians and the various personnel that were involved in the making of this album. And on that list was, was Steve Walsh, John Elefante, uh, others that other people that have been involved with Kansas over the years. And here they were helping produce this record that that praises scripture in the name of Jesus. But let me close with this thought. Now, in digging into Carrie Livgren's story and reading and watching interviews, I was really struck by this idea of Christian fans of Kansas praying for their favorite songwriter. And the Holy Spirit brought this question to my mind. Dan, how often do you pray for the artists you enjoy? Now, some of my favorite artists are believers. They're already following Jesus, but many of them are not. For example, uh, don't judge me here, but I love the music of the Smashing Pumpkins. Now, I know from interviews that their primary songwriter, Billy Corgan, is a guy that has been spiritually searching for years. But how often have I prayed for the salvation of his soul? One of my all-time favorite artists, uh, see his records right back there, Tom Petty, he died a few years ago, 2017, right, I'm pretty sure he didn't know Jesus, and I never prayed for him, how about you, how often do you pray for the artists whose work you enjoy, right, actors, authors, singers, I mean, what if we prayed for Tom Cruise, and he meets Jesus, and he leaves Scientology behind, What if we prayed for Stephen King and Jesus came into his life in an unexpected way and and then he could write a book where the Christian character wasn't complete Looney Tunes? What if Christian fans prayed for The Weeknd or Billie Eilish, Ed Sheeran, so that they would have life-changing encounters with their creator? And then maybe Ed Sheeran could write write a love song different from any love song he's ever written before about the lover of his soul. So I'm going to sign off right now, but I challenge you to take a few moments to pray for an artist that you love, an artist whose work has had an influence in your life. Pray for them. Pray that they would find Jesus. Pray that that, that God would place people and events in their life that would lead them to the eternal truth. Thank you. And God bless.